Hello and welcome to the Conspiracy Theory Test. I'm Yvonne. Uh, and I'm Karen. And this morning we're joined by a very, very special guest, Professor Luke O'Neill. How are you? How's it going, Karen? Good, good. All good. Very, very welcome. And we're delighted to have you here this morning. No problem. So for any new listeners, this is a show where myself and Karen put our conspiracy theory knowledge and our powers of persuasion to the test. Every week we pick a bizarre theory each and try to convince each other of its legitimacy. But this week we'll be doing something very different. We're going to actually be debunking a conspiracy for the first time. And um, who better to help us than uh, the man himself, Professor Luke O'Neill. Yeah, so Professor yes. O'Neill, do you buy into conspiracy theories at all yourself or do you just... You're, you're back uh, well, the I'm, I'm a scientist. Time. I'm a scientist, Karen. You've got to define what it is. You see, first of all, <laughs> very good at defining things as scientists and then trying to address them, I suppose. So, so conspiracy theory, how do you guys define it, I suppose, is the first part of this. I suppose it's just something a bit unusual or questioning. I suppose, yeah, it's questioning something that you find maybe not that believable. And that, right. yeah. past episodes that we've done, we've done pretty, we've done pretty, we've done disappearing sub submachines or submarines and we've done yeah. like uh pigeons that are actually spies so we cover a little bit of, of wacky yeah. kind of theories right. that way yeah gotcha yeah i mean i wonder does it mean like um someone gets some idea going and then starts to spread it because like a conspiracy kind of is there's something behind something else is it in a sense yeah 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 absolutely i think that's what it is damaging. Yeah, yeah i think yeah. so i think that's essentially the, the crux of it really with conspiracies yeah. for sure Right. Does it normally mean I'm asking you questions? At the- <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, does it normally mean uh, something's being suggested as a way to control people, say, or does that, that's what strikes me as the word conspiracy? In other words, this isn't real. It's being made up to control us. Is that is that one aspect or, or is it also just sort of wild stuff like a, a double decker bus on Mars or whatever it might be? You know? uh, I think I think the former. What do you think of the former? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That's a huge yeah. part of us is that right. um, is the control aspect. And that's when we get into like simulations or yeah. um, like assassination theories. Uh, we do a lot of fake deaths. Do we somehow oh, come yeah. around to them a lot? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then I suppose as well, um, the secretive element of us is a big part of us yeah. as well yeah. that comes up. Absolutely. Yeah. And the one that I'd actually like to just have a quick chat with you uh, today about uh, Professor O'Neill is actually the great COVID-19 conspiracy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the one on everyone's lips at the moment. I have come across that all right. Well, you see, obviously science counters conspiracy theories in a way because it has to be about data. That's the most important thing for science, really. And then you look at the data and then you decide some conclusion based on that data. And if new data comes along that counters the prevailing wisdom, then you, a scientist has to adapt, you know? Mm. So someone has an idea about something or a hypothesis or whatever. All science, by the way, starts with some idea, mm-hmm. hypothesis. And then you try and get data to support the hypothesis, you see? So, so again, if, if someone comes up with a new idea about something, if they produce data to support it, it's up to me as a scientist to counter that data. Now, now with COVID-19, like there is a virus that's been identified. Uh, it was first seen, as we know, in China. You can grow the virus in a lab. You can infect animals with the virus and cause a disease. It's the thing called Cox postulates, actually, in my business. When, when people first began to discover infectious agents, they had to fulfill certain criteria, and they were laid down. We got Robert Cox, who was a very famous German guy, you know. And, and in this case, you infect an animal, and it gets symptoms just like the human disease. Uh, if you block the virus in some way, 
and the disease goes away or is limited or somehow changes, then that's more evidence the virus is causing things, you know? So, so in other words, the scientific basis for COVID-19 is as strong as any other scientific finding, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we can counter any ideas that it's something made up or, you know, fake or whatever with data. And that's, that's really what it's all about, I say. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's great because uh, the one that we, as I said, when I was looking into it and I was researching it, uh, as you said, like it does, the, the COVID-19 itself actually, it does derive from a coronavirus known as yeah. SARS-CoV-2. That's right. Okay, yeah. uh, that was first associated with a wet market in Wuhan, in China. Yeah, that's the current view because the evidence would suggest that, you know, that may change as we get more evidence. I mean, I think conspiracy comes into things when there's a deficit in the data, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. probably have half the data on this virus. That's very compelling data, having said that, you know, but there yeah. are unanswered questions there. And I guess that void can be filled in either with scientific ideas that may be a bit wrong or overstated or indeed some kind of conspiracy, I suppose, is where it fits in. But uh, but no, I mean, if you're a virologist, I mean, the, the, the history, if you look at the history of these things, it's very good, actually. So this disease begins with people ending up in hospital in China with a disease that didn't look like other diseases. And they spotted it was a new kind of illness. It could have been like the flu. It could have been like some other respiratory lungs being affected. But the, the clever doctor is, nah, there's something different here, you know? Mm. And they look for what the virus is. They can't find the flu virus in the patient. So they can't find other viruses. And then they see this new virus. And that begins then... The basis for this, I suppose, starts and then from that moment on, then evidence accumulates, you see, to support mm -hmm. our current view of it, I guess. Okay, yeah, and that's the thing, as we, as we know, that like it started in Wuhan and obviously quickly spread. The thing, the funny thing is, though, I think the longer that it's, it's gone on and, and it has spread worldwide, the more kind of legs a lot of conspiracies gain. So initially, even within China itself, there was claims that the Chinese government tried to cover up the outbreak yeah. Uh, at first and that any whistleblower doctors who were who tried to warn of the severity of the, of the issue were actually uh persecuted yeah that's right that's that's the information isn't it just that doesn't help at all does it let's face it i mean the trouble is science if i may be so bold karen is the pure mm. of human activities right mm. but the trouble is humans do it you know <laughs> and we humans myself included have flaws you know and especially when you bring politics into it, that can be disastrous. They, they very rarely mix well together, politics and science, because there can be all kinds of reasons why that can go wrong, you know. And then other vested interests get involved, and that makes things even worse, you know. Now, I'm not sure about the evidence of what China was doing there. I do know the, what I do know for a fact is the Chinese scientists got the information out quickly. Okay. And we owe them a debt of gratitude because they released the sequence of the virus in, in, in January 11, I think it was. And then the vaccination campaign could begin, you see. So, so in other words, they behaved really well there. Now, whether they were then suppressed and we've read about the whistleblower and all, that's very unfortunate, you see, if that's true. Now, again, it may be true, it may not be true, I don't know. But, but it looks like something sort of unusual was happening there, you know. But the fact is, the Chinese, uh, we got the information out, the virus began to spread, and then off we go kind of thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Another one as well is that uh, a lot of people, as I said, the more rapidly it spread to different countries, a lot of people started to, to maybe think that, uh, was this SARS-CoV-2, was that intentionally created by a laboratory in Wuhan so they could create an all-purpose yeah. vaccine? Yeah, there's a few options at the moment, which we would look at and have, a, again, as hypotheses. And, and, and you're trying to answer the question, which you all know, where the virus come from? Now, we know it wasn't man-made because you can read the RNA sequence and you can see if it's been tampered with. In other words, if you take a piece, this is an RNA virus, so the recipe is 
RNA. You can see if that's been manipulated and that hasn't happened with this virus. We think that's the evidence at the moment. Uh, now, of course, um, it could have been in a lab and then it was an accident and it's a natural virus gets out. That's, that's, a, that's a possibility. We don't know the answer to that either. You know, seems unlikely because from what we know about the, that lab in Wuhan, for instance, it was very well maintained. You know, they were following all their guidelines. The WHO went in there. <laughs> now again, we're of course, as you would agree, conspiracy theories uh, thrive by how do you know all that? Is so yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have to be, uh, you can't be being a bit reasonable, I suppose. Look, this is what we're being told. It looks reasonable to me when I read it myself. You know, I'm, I have to make your own mind up. I didn't go into the lab myself, did I? You know, so again, mm. and I was not going to trust, remember, <laughs> in anything like this. And you have to, I trust certain scientists. I trust certain journals. I don't trust other ones, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that seems like a reasonable uh, sequence of events. The big unanswered question is, did it seafood market? Was it brought in there by a worker in the market who picked it up outside the market? Mm. Uh, even suggestions that might have come from Laos or Vietnam because there were loads of coronaviruses and bats in that region as well, you see. So, so we don't really know the answer to the question, where did it come from, except to say that it wasn't man-made. And somehow it probably came from a bat. And again, that's based on scientific evidence. So okay. it's from a bat into a, a human. May have gone through a pangolin. There's some evidence for that as well. This is evidence. Now, there could be evidence that might replace that. There could be better evidence as we study this more and more. But at the moment, that, that's what the evidence would suggest, again, based on data. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you always have to back up what the data is telling you for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely it's, not... It's, it's, Go on, sorry. Yeah. There's a great phrase. One of my favorite phrases in all of science, Karen, is the Royal Society, which is the world's oldest scientific society. Like people like Newton and Robert Boyle, an Irish scientist, they're a, they found that everybody who has, has, been, has been a great scientist is, is in the Royal Society. And their motto in 1660 was nullius in verba, which is take nobody's word. That's the motto. Brilliant. That means is don't say stuff unless you can back it up with data. Otherwise, shut up. Okay? That's, the kind of, that's the principle here, you see. And that's Absolutely. what science is, really. Now, you can get theoretical. So things like modeling is more based on theory, and, and that's a different thing. It's important in science to be, have theory, try to get some data. But the real hard data comes from immunology and virology and these sciences, actually, which I prefer myself because I like to see the data, you know. So that's yeah. the answer. Oh, brilliant. So it wasn't, definitely wasn't caused by uh, 5G. <laughs> or Bill Gates no, is well, somehow behind it all. <laughs> well, if, if that was a hypothesis, I'd like to know the mechanism there. See, science is also very mechanistic. In other words, drill into it. Prove to me now as best you can the link between, say, 5G or whatever and this virus. If you can't provide the mechanism, I'm less likely to believe you. Mm. If you can, then I'm more likely to believe you. You know, that kind of thing. So that's another thing to remember. Did you not just watch all the Facebook videos of people dropping dead from 5G, no? <laughs> no, I'm too busy for that. Fair. <laughs> in, in the unlikely event that there was some connection and there was massive compelling evidence for anything, it doesn't have to be that specific, I would say that could be correct, you know? Mm, absolutely, yeah. And it's just, as I suppose, it's just funny, the, as I said, the longer that it's gone on for, for people, and I suppose there is this general, like in Ireland and all over the world, this general kind of, fed upness of like yeah. you know that kind of way and then it's like well well how do we know this is going on or you know yeah, yeah. and you do, i suppose the longer that we've all been inside having time to think about it <laughs> you know exactly. you start asking a few more questions and things like that as well precisely yeah well the trouble there is you see people are anxious and mm. they're worried and that that, could, that that can prey upon people's minds absolutely and they can begin to think oh maybe this is happening and, and that's a reasonable thing if they're anxious you know so, so they, often in my opinion, you, you, that gets exploited in a way, or at least 
that people are vulnerable, let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Then comes to the fore and then they begin to worry more and more. And it's understood, this is a terrible pandemic. People are going to worry about it. That's why we need science more than ever, actually, because the goal of science is to banish fear. The Marie Curie Stadowska said that, you know. Mm. Back to my book, as you may know, I quote her at the very start, you know. Yeah, yeah it's a lovely quote as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and that really captures it for me. You know, there was people, what she kind of says there is, and she was one of the greatest scientists of all time, wins two Nobel Prizes, you know. She, she says, look, she says, things aren't to be feared, they're to be understood. The more we understand, the less we fear. So, so that's really important. That's one of the functions of science, actually, is to take some of the fear away from these things. And then, and then most importantly of all, probably, is to come up with solutions and to, and to help the situation, you see. So whenever I hear about conspiracy theory, how are you helping with that theory? Because also yeah. you have to be helping each other, in a sense, you know? And, and these things, they, they can help, you never know. But... It's always sort of a challenge then to turn that theory into something useful to us, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, probably the problem with conspiracy theories in this kind of realm is that they're started by people who aren't scientists. So there's a yeah. lot of correlation mixed up with causation, I'd say. Exactly. And, and, and the opening bit of my book, I talk about that. Not that, that, that big, uh, one, of the big, one of the big challenges of science is to link correlation with causation, actually. Like virus causes this disease. It's not just correlating with it. Or smoking causes cancer, not because of a correlation. It's because it's causing cancer. And the smoking one's a good one, actually, because they got a mechanism. There's chemicals that mutate genes that cause tumors to grow. And the evidence is 100% certain. There's 99.99% certain, anyway. Um, there's also a philosophical question about what constitutes truth in science, which we can go into if you like. But, but that's a bit more complicated. Yeah. But it's all about reproducibility. Like that smoking cancer link was shown all over the world by many different scientists, all working independently, you know, mm. and that's a pretty good example of how science can work at its best because, because then you can stop cancer by targeting that process, you see. Mm. I think it's the, same, it's the same can be said for like the vaccine and the fact that within a year we've had like not one, but like maybe three, potentially four you know, available vaccines yeah. that are that are that are available to, to the general public. And like to me, that's like like it's incredible. Like it's something I've never before seen in my life. And yeah. I wonder, is it is it possible that is this what we're just going to start seeing more and more of? Is that quicker development of yeah. certain types of things? Like is that possible? Well exactly, Karen. And you you wouldn't have seen that vaccine without decades of science and a huge amount of immunology and a huge amount of virology and a huge amount of infectious disease expertise eventually gave rise to this tiny little tube that you stick in your arm and now you're protected. You know? I mean, it's amazing. It took tens of thousands of people, scientists, because, because to make progress in science, it takes an army and, and it also takes, you know, building on the previous study and then you little step for, further and then eventually you get somewhere, you know? And of course, if, if, if something's wrong in that chain and the idea was wrong or, there was an artifact in the experiment, it falls away, it doesn't continue. So, so when you see that vaccine, actually, that's a culmination of truth in many ways, because it took an awful lot of in, independent lines of evidence and confirmation in different places to get to that point. And then you get to the ultimate truth, mm. which is a vaccine to stop COVID-19. So it's a really good example, actually, of how science works, I suppose, in essence. Yeah, this is great. So Ivan, will we go on to some, some questions then? Absolutely, yeah, yeah work away. Cool. Um, so actually, just one that I wanted to talk to you about, Professor O'Neill, you, you wrote an article recently for the Irish Times uh, just this past weekend. And in it, you, you give a nod to South Korea and their success at kind of containing and, and dealing with it with the virus. And you yourself said it wasn't really through kind of um, 
stringent lockdowns, but yeah. rather their their test and, and tracing system. Do you think that that's something we could have handled maybe better, or is it you know what was your what's your general opinion on that? Yeah, well, to be honest, I kind of wrote that piece uh, I'm, I'm, because I'm doing this interview, by the way. I can't plug me on it to be now, kind of be like, plug away, plug yeah, away. <laughs> yeah, that piece was uh, they've asked this, I think it's called Winter Nights, this Irish Times thing, and all of us who get interviewed were asked to do a piece. So I decided to sort of write that along the lines of what do we do now more than anything else? You know, what can we learn? Mm. Now, South Korea, they got lucky in a way because uh, they got in very early. Now, what that tells us is it's a very contagious virus. It's almost impossible to stop with testing if the stable door is closed after the horse's bolt. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. In other words, they were they were lucky in that regard. Now they were lucky because they'd been through MERS. So they, they'd experienced another coronavirus, which didn't kill that many, but it still caused a lot of trouble in South Korea. There was a small lockdown quarantine happened there. And they were ready then for this one, you know. So they, they were trained. So so in our case, I'm I'm saying in the article, look, what have we learned from this thing? Mm-hmm. You know. Can we, when, when the numbers go right down, and they will go down with the current measures, now is the time then to really get in there with the testing because we might actually get ahead of it this time around, you know? Now, now of course, I say, if not, why not? That's the question I asked in that. Right, I said, look, I said, testing is a great weapon. The South Koreans have proven it. Why can't we do it? Now, I can't answer that. that that's a kind of a political question and logistical and all these mm. things to play, you know? And then I, I, the other big issue for us would be the travel issue. Like, it, why can't we have quarantine? If, if that, and that's worked tremendously mm-hmm. well in Australia and New Zealand and so on. So, so that's something that we should consider as well. And if we're not going to consider it, if we can't do it, why not? So that, that was the kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of emphasis in that part of it, really, I suppose. But, but that, that, that was also saying, what difference does science make? Mm. Not the first difference science made was testing because if this virus had cropped up say 100 years ago we didn't have PCR yeah. or those special scientific tests so we, we devised those tests and began to use them and then deploy them so science delivers on the test it's mm. up to others then to realise that you know uh, I suppose that technology that would help us in a way you know yeah. and that was the kind of thrust of that comment I suppose and thankfully I mean I feel sorry in a way for the government and all those because it's not easy this by any means you know mm. but my, my point was science has done its job now it's up to other people and the best to look you know with them. yeah absolutely yeah that's it and i suppose there's been talk even within the last 24 hours of the the vaccine rollout and and who gets the vaccine and, and yeah. all that kind of crack and so just i suppose because the questions that we have now have actually been sent in by, by our family and our friends and things like that yeah. but um just in your own opinion like how how safe is the vaccine and does it actually offer full protection yeah. from from the the coronavirus or covid-19 that we know and against the new strains that we're seeing mutate yeah, these are all fantastic questions, Karen, because this is in our minds as well, you know. Now, what happens there is any new vaccine or any new medicine has to go through a very stringent safety analysis because, and this goes back over 100 years in America when snake oil was on sale, the FDA was set up to kind of regulate that, you know. So, so this, this is a, a sort of a natural thing to do to protect people. So the mission of the agencies is first and foremost to protect people against a new vaccine or medicine. And secondly, to make sure it does what it says on the tin, if I can use that well-worn phrase. In other words, it is efficacious in this way. So, so once the regulators press go, we can, we can trust those regulators. They're very diligent people. They don't want to harm anybody. There have been a few missteps in history that people make mistakes. Of course they do, you know. Mm-hmm. For all, once those regulators say these vaccines are now safe to use and they're efficacious, absolutely we take them, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, there's always a risk. Everything, even if you take a glass of water, you're going to risk 
doing something to your body, you know? Yeah. Walking down the street. So there's always risks and there will be a level of risk in this, but the risk is very low compared to the risk if you get this disease is much higher. So you're balancing those two the whole time. So people can be rest assured that the regulation is so stringent that these vaccines that have been approved, and there's two in Ireland now, absolutely take that vaccine. The benefit far outweighs the risk. Now, the next bit then becomes, will they work? And again, the efficacy says they do in the trials tremendously. That, now, there's a great example of science in action, to be honest. Mm. So the, the trial was 40,000 people. That, and that was a lot of people, by the way. Statistically, that's a huge number. Millions of people have had it now. And it's, it's holding up in Israel. They've, uh, they've the most vaccinated. I think it's two over two and a half million now. Yeah. Uh, they showed 50% efficacy in the first jab, which is consistent with the trial. That's great. So mm. there was science in action because science is all about reproducibility and things repeat you know yes now we're off and running great vaccine off we go you know now um they're new vaccines so people worry about that because the speed and that's not a worry because it's only went fast because lots of people went on the case simple yeah. as that. okay um, and resources billions were put into this by the federal government in america and all kinds you know so that's good that's why it went fast really and mm-hmm. uh, what we don't know of course is long-term safety because what happens is you get two months safety date on the trial and that's sufficient that's what the regulators say, and we all agree with that, by the way. So if you inject a piece of RNA into your arm and you wait two months and you haven't got any side effects, that's a good prediction of the future. Yeah. There's something more to come up because your immune system's firing in those first week or two, you know. Mm, so right. we're pretty confident that the two-week safety will predict long-term safety. The, the problem is humans are different, and you might have one in a million who sadly react in the wrong way you know so but they keep an eye on that and have what's called pharmacovigilance which is a pretty important part of this once it's out in the the marketplace if you like they monitor that very closely and again fantastically so far so good there haven't been any safety signals in the israeli group of two and a half million people i think it's something like nine million now have had that pfizer vaccine and nothing has said stop using this vaccine so it's great yeah absolutely yeah and it's a step it's a stepwise process and and of course in the back of our minds always are keep a close eye on it monitor things closely mm. and make sure everything's good you know so that, that, that's where we're at with with, with, the, with those with the Pfizer vaccine at the moment mm-hmm. uh, of course more vaccines to come and and we're, we can't wait for the next set really because some are more convenient uh some are um one shot the Johnson and Johnson vaccine looks like it's going to be a single shot vaccine so all that will help as well yeah absolutely which is great and as I said it is it's inc- for me it's incredible to see like you know like science work and that quickly like in less than a year that we had not only yeah. like one but like two or three viable vaccines was was incredible yeah. um and so i just want and another other things that people want to know is just how how did they pick the order in which people receive the vaccine and where did they get the information that determines how the groups who receive the vaccine are allocated so i know a while ago there was like a list of like 15 groups say in Ireland yeah. who would get it so yeah. how was that kind of determined would you know well, ideally, you give it to everybody right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that can't happen because of supply, because obviously you're making up the damn stuff to get it out there and you need people to do the vaccinating. So, so that, that's not feasible. Well, that's the goal is to get it to everybody. And because of the issue of supply and logistics, you've got to roll it out in a certain order. And the greatest need comes first. It's as simple as that. And it begins with the healthcare workers because they're on the front line for us from here. And they get infected because they're in hospitals where there's lots of virus. They go first, and that's understandable. They're putting their lives on the line for us. It's mm-hmm. not ethical. And in fact, it's ethical in a way, which is outside science, but, but there yeah. is an ethical dimension to it. Next, then, we know people over 70, 80, they're very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They go next, you know? 
and the ones in nursing homes, especially because they're in a big community and it might spread like wildfire among them. So that's next on the list. And then once they're done, then the next group are anybody in a certain age category, because we know if you're over 65, I think 70% of the deaths are people over 65. That's your next group. And then you've also got the vulnerable people with diseases like obesity is a big risk factor, diabetes, you know, they go next, you know. And then gradually you ramp it down to younger and younger people. And then finally, everybody's done. Now, where it gets, con- now this is outside science, I have to say, but I will yeah. comment on it anyway, because it's in my mind as well, remember, you know, why would you give it, why wouldn't you give it to school teachers quickly or, you know, GPs were a bit behind the curve. They're good questions to ask. Again, they've got to make some decision, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, upsetting someone, I imagine. So that's a tricky one. That's it. Yeah, you can't please them all, as they say. Yeah, and, um, and these people have a good case to make in a way, you know, but but still, all, all we can really hope for it here is we get as much vaccine into the country as quick as we can, into everybody as quickly as we can. And, and the numbers are quite good. I mean, we're going to have 700,000 done by March, they're saying. I think it's 4 million by September. That's tremendous. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just in relation to that, how soon after you receive the vaccine can you stop wearing masks and social distancing and hand, yeah. but sanitizing your hands and stuff? Well, there's a great phrase, Karen, in the vaccine game. No one's safe till we're all safe is the way to think of it, right? So, so and now that's that's kind of extreme because we can't keep doing this for years until the whole world is vaccinated either. You know, yeah. you're trying to get the balance right there. Uh, we're going to have to keep wearing masks and observing things for at least six months until everybody's until all the vulnerable are protected for definite and until we slow down the spread of this virus that's the next key goal in a sense you know now if the the one thing that we we're um, you know we're we're, we're we're questioning scientifically is will the virus stop transmission or the vaccine sorry will the vaccine stop transmission so and we still don't fully know mm-hmm. if we get a vaccine that definitely stops transmission we can stop wearing masks because now you're not going to spread it to any, but no need to wear masks, you know? Yeah. That's still not fully understood. So at the moment, it's going to be just to be on the safe side. We'll keep up with all these things, probably for six months, I would predict realistically. But as time goes by, uh, we'll get less and less stringent on these things because the death rate will plummet. Number of people getting sick will plummet as well. Hospitalizations will plummet. And that means we can, we can begin to relax a little bit, you know? But, but to say exactly when the day will come, leaving our masks in the bin, it's hard to say. We'd, we'd be foolish not to keep it up for the foreseeable future anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As, as someone who likes hugging people, I'm just looking forward to the day I can start <laughs> well, hugging exactly. my mates again, you know? <laughs> absolutely. You that, human behaviour will change as well, remember. I'm, I'm, and mm. you're seeing that a bit. There's a bit of complacency will creep in. And they worried in Brazil, for instance, there was a thing, I did this yesterday on Pat Kennedy, there's a city called Manaus, where there was massive infections, like 50% of the population, mm. they all thought there'd be herd immunity and they began hugging each other again and then it went up again, you know, not quite hugging each other, but, but yeah. you know, they didn't take the precaution. It's a bit of complacency, so you be careful. But we have to get back to all those things. I've no doubt we will. Mm-hmm. I mean, it will become an endemic virus in the end, which will mean it's in the community like the common cold. We vaccinate the vulnerable and children and then it's like the flu, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. We, we, now the question then becomes: should we, should we keep the masks on to stop the flu spreading i don't know maybe we should in the winter you never know maybe yeah that's yeah. on the back of our minds as well you know yeah absolutely um and then i just want to know then what's what's next kind of for immunology and vaccine development uh on, on the back of this do you think well you can imagine this has turbocharged <laughs> vaccine game it was always the poor relation in immunology, to be honest. It sounds a bit strange to say that, but uh, so my my own area within immunology was more inflammatory diseases. Mm-hmm. 
And what I work on in my lab are things like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, they're inflammatory, you know? Yeah. I also worked on infectious inflammations. Any infection causes inflammation. If, if you cut yourself and you get a sore, swollen hand, that's inflammation as well, you know? And I worked on that. And I also worked on a lot, some respiratory diseases in the past as well. In the case of COVID, your lungs get inflamed, you know? Mm. But, but, but the real action was inflammatory diseases. They were, they were they're very common. They're very debilitating. We don't have good treatments for Crohn's disease, colitis, mm. uh, and this is all immune mediated as well, you know, whereas the vaccine business was kind of important. There were vaccines, of course, and we vaccinate children, but some companies didn't do any vaccination at all because there was too much trouble. Mm-hmm. They couldn't quite make as much money from, must be said, and you can make more money from other, and these companies are commercially minded, you know. So it was always kind of seen as the correlation in a way within immunology, even though it's extremely important. Uh, and, and But now, different story, because because these vaccines are going to save us. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, these new technologies will galvanize efforts to make vaccines against malaria, TB, cancers on the horizon. There, there is wow. a thing for HPV, as you might know. So yes. we have other vaccines for cancer coming out of this. So what, one prediction we're making, in fact, I'll give you an example. Karen. I, I'm involved in companies as well, of course. My own company got bought, as people know by now, um, back in September. So I consult for a couple of companies. As an academic, now I don't work for them. They ask my advice occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was a, 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 a in December, a massive analysis was done on the whole biotech pharma sector. This comes out every year. It's like a expert opinion thing. And number one was vaccines. Now, so it just shows you. Last year, it didn't even make the top ten. I bet you. You know, yes. so it just it's been ramped up huge. It's an it's an exciting time, I'd say, for for someone like yourself in your field to see all this kind of going on, like. Well, look at malaria. That's still killing one to two million people a year. Then they tried hard with malaria with vaccines and failed. And they got put off. Like the human beings, just like just I, I said, I mean, they get put off because they're spending money and, and nothing's coming in, mm-hmm. breaking their hearts, you know? Yeah. This will now re-energize those people, for example, and other people working in infectious diseases trying to get vaccines. So I've no doubt it'll have a big impetus now. And that RNA technology, the one that's being used by Pfizer and Moderna, that was the first time an RNA vaccine was approved. So now they're going to go, hey, let's try another diseases. You know, so it's obvious in a way that that, that will now happen next time. Yeah, great. I, just, I've, I have one more question for you, uh, Professor O'Neill. Ireland's 12 months from now. What does that look like for you? Yes, that's a great question, Karen. And I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> my, main question on the, my main question on the back of that is, will there be pints? That's have the you looked main... at your horoscope? Look up that, that could be a conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say a year from now, well, let me give you a timeline from now, probably to then, it's probably the best way to do this. If we're lucky, now remember there can be many a slip in, in the business of science as well. Things go wrong and things get held up and we don't know. There's the, 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 the variants that we were gonna mention those, we've got these new mutants, I mean, they're in the back of our minds. So there's a few things happening that give rise to uncertainty with what I'm gonna tell you. But I do think the following scenario is reasonable. The vaccination program will decrease the death rate dramatically because that's what these vaccines do. They stop it getting sick. It'll decrease hospitalizations. When we get to kind of June, let's go for that as a reasonable estimate. We will be in a much better place with our hospitals and the level of illness in the community and the level of death, which is the biggest tragedy of all in this whole business, right? That's fantastic. That means the government will have to start to reopen things because there's no reason to keep them closed because the people are now being protected medically, right? Now that will then continue as the months go by. We'll still wear masks, we'll still, uh, do the hand washing probably until six months from now, I would guess that'll still be pretty, you know, the guidelines will be there for that. You will begin to see hospitality reopen. You have to, you know, 
the pubs may even reopen themselves now now i would predict there'll still be restrictions and if the numbers may be allowed in a pub or a theater or a venue uh, there could be a time when they've done that as well uh, the big question is will you have to prove you've been vaccinated to do certain things that might be on the horizon that questions people's civil liberty sometimes if you don't like that but but still there may be a situation where to travel you'll probably have to show you about the vaccine mm-hmm. uh, one interesting one at the moment is friends of mine in australia there's a big debate now in Australia. But guess what the next big question is going to be? If the vaccines don't prevent transmission very much, right, that makes the whole travel business less likely because you may be protected, but you may bring the Australians. Yeah, yeah. So the, the notion of getting rid of quarantine in Australia now is uncertain. And that's a debate we're having. And it's disturbing the Australians because they thought, oh, the vaccine's the way out, you know. Mm-hmm. So we have to hope these vaccines stop transmission. And there's initial evidence with the Pfizer, the one that does, the Israelis, again, are suggesting 33% decrease in transmission. Uh, some of the other vaccines, I bet you they will, you know. But that's, I don't know. So it just depends, you see. But if they do stop transmission, then you can see travel coming back with a bang. You can see a vaccine passport, though, must be said. That's bound to be implemented. We have a, the yellow fever vaccine anyway in Africa, so it's just an add-on to that, you see. So yeah. once, once you see that happening, then you can see travel. The, the, the big things that have to come back in sort of from... September on our travel mm-hmm. and opening of hospitality and big venues like theaters and the entertainment sector. You may see they're the two that will be the last to be dealt with, shall we say, you know? Okay. Yeah. So I can see those reopening, but I can see restrictions still in place for, for a while because we're still nervous, you know? But a year from now, we'll have got through Christmas. I mean, I predict there'll be a reasonably normal Christmas, actually, we would hope, you know? Mm-hmm. And then once we get over that and there isn't a spike next January, then we're almost back to normal if that happens. Mm-hmm. But now, as I said, there's a few things that can go wrong in this timeline, but well, that's a reasonable enough prospect. And remember, we keep using science to monitor things the whole time. Yeah. We measure the vaccine efficacy in the community. We measure the decrease in transmission. Um, we measure the risk of new variants cropping up, which will have to be dealt with as well, you see. So, so all those things are still being monitored the whole time. So it's going to be very much a scientific process. as we, And we, again, we'll use science to banish the fear. Yeah. And once the fear goes away, we're back to normal, you know. Looking, looking forward to it very much. <laughs> Thanks for that, uh, Professor Luke. Uh, so, yeah, Van. Yeah, um, Professor, I was just going to move on to a little bit about the anti-vaxxer movement. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that started? Well, yeah, but it's always been there, Evan. I mean, even when the first vaccine came out, smallpox, there was a campaign against it because they all thought it was unnatural, you know, and some pulse from a cow's cowpox, you know, all that kind of thing, and. So it's always been there. Uh, va- I, I like, I mean, vaccine hesitancy is a very understandable thing because people are nervous about these things and have to get a needle in their arm and give it to their baby and the baby isn't sick and all that. So, so that's one aspect of it. And we're very aware of that. And, and, and to, to, to assuage the hesitancy issue, you got to be trying to get all the data out there and then just reassure people. And GPs are very important for that, for example. So, because people will still, even if you show people data, they might still be nervous. So, so you need a bit of reassurance as well. Now, now when you get to the vaccine denial business, that's a different thing entirely, because they're denying the data, you know, and the data is there. And if you're going to deny that data, that's your business. If you wish to deny that data, that's up to you, you know. But it is denial because because the data supports that we should vaccinate. So, so that that's where that comes into that realm. If they want to produce data against the data that's there, if we're an open, scientifically minded people, we can look at that, can't we? Compare it. But 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 the vast majority of people say vaccines are safe. 
They've, they've saved millions and millions of lives over decades. There are some adverse events, of course, there are, and there's illness, and sadly, very rare things happen. But all the health agencies in the world say, vaccinate your child, you know? So I go with that myself. But if someone says, I don't want to, it's a free, it's a free country, you know, people, people may say, I don't want to do that. Where it becomes dangerous is that they harm other people through their actions. And that's where some countries mandate vaccines because they say, your decision not to vaccinate could harm someone else. And that's not acceptable. You know, I don't like that idea myself. I think it's, you know, we live in a liberal society, so I would never advocate for that necessarily. But that's an example of some countries do this. In our case, you've just got to keep getting the message out there. You've just got to keep getting the data out there. That's all you can do, really. You can't do much more. Of course, yeah. And actually, that leads on to my next question was because um, with so many people opposed to vaccines and uh, as you say, it's their right to do so. But can we ever really fully eradicate a disease again, like with polio and that kind of thing? Well, you never know with this one now, interestingly. So it's very hard to get rid of a, an infectious disease. We've only ever done it with smallpox and polio is nearly gone, right? And that took a huge amount of effort because every country in the world has to be fully vaccinated and the logistical and all kinds of questions, there, you know? Uh, maybe we can, and, and maybe COVID will be eliminated. You never know. If we can get the vaccine into 80% of the world's population, there's a good chance it'll go the way of smallpox. Wouldn't it be tremendous if we could banish every infectious disease in the world? Because there's still massive suffering from these diseases, remember, including malaria and TB as two examples, as we know. Uh, but that'd be a real wonderful goal to aim for. It, it, it just takes the will to do it. I mean, in a way, we did it with smallpox. And that turned out to be a vaccine that was very efficacious and quite easy to deploy. Some infectious disease are more difficult. The vaccine is unstable or has to be kept at minus 70. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not straightforward by any means. But I think that's a massive goal. And WHO have had this goal for years. They, 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 they've been going at polio now. It's gone from Africa, you know. So I think, can you imagine if we fast forward, let's be in the Star Trek movie now, 50 years from now. 30 years from now, imagine if we rid of four or five big infectious diseases from the earth. That would relieve so much human suffering. It would be a tremendous goal to have. Absolutely. Fantastic. Definitely worthwhile, definitely. Um, and back to the vaccine as well. Do you think that the HSE intend to provide daily numbers of vaccines or monthly targets? I hope so. Yeah, we're pressing for that. They said they're going to do it weekly, aren't they? I think they said they'll have it as a weekly thing. Uh, you can see it every day yourself. If you go onto that uh, vaccine website, there's a Oh, well, they update every day anyway, you know, so for every country. So why not make that available to, to the Irish people? I'd like that. I, mean, I think if every night there was the number of cases, which makes everybody feel, oh, God, you know, and then the number of deaths, tragically. If you had that, But meanwhile, we've done another 100,000 people this week. Wouldn't that be great? So why not? I don't see why they can't do that. I'd love to see what we do. Yeah, it'd be nice to see some positive numbers instead of negative numbers. It would suggest that we're making progress. Because we look at the numbers going up and down, don't we? When they go up, we're depressed. And when they go, no, that's quite good. Next day, it's back up again. So that could be an add-on. It could be another little little thing to give us a bit of hope. Brilliant, yeah. Um, As um, Karen said, we put this out to our listeners. And a lot of, most of what people seem to ask, actually, funnily enough, was... um, how is it for pregnant people? And kind of what advice would you give to people who are yeah, pregnant? That's a really important question. I remember many healthcare workers are either pregnant or they're planning on getting pregnant or whatever. So especially in America, for instance. So uh, the, the, the trouble is the vaccine wasn't tested in pregnant women is, is the first thing to say. So you can't say, look, pregnant women should have it. But the guidelines are there now, in fact, that it's okay if you're pregnant to have the vaccine. There's even, a, I think that they recommend a limit on the number of weeks you know, not, not to go beyond that number of weeks, for instance, if I remember right. If you look up the guidelines are there, 
uh, for that. So, but it is possible for pregnant women to be vaccinated, absolutely. And other vaccines never showed any ill effects during pregnancy. There's also evidence now in animal models. They do this thing called reprotox, which is a way to test to see if something, any drug or medicine, if it does affect development. And there was no effects there. So that gives us reassurance, you know. But as ever with these things, if anybody is pregnant who wants to be vaccinated, just double check with the vaccinator. Just ask them, you know, and they'll reassure you. you know? Fantastic. I suppose it's probably the same thing for the next question we got was, um, is there a way for those with allergies or who use an EpiPen to take the Yeah, again, we've seen that absolutely. Now, again, there were a few cases of a, a severe allergic reaction, tiny numbers. It looks like that might have been unlucky, actually, in the first rollout. There were five or six people, hardly any in Israel, but there's millions now. So we're less concerned about it, first of all. If it does happen, it can be treated. And those cases where there was an allergic reaction, they could treat it quite quickly, you know, so no, there were no long-term consequences from it. Uh, if you have an EpiPen, they're recommending you stay 30 minutes after the vaccine just to keep an eye on you. Brilliant, yeah. If you do have some reaction, you need to be treated. That's a very good guideline, I think, you know. And then the last thing to say is there's, they found that what's causing the allergy, again, science in action, uh, it's the thing called polyethylene glycol is in that Pfizer vaccine and a tiny number of people are known to be allergic to it. If you happen to be one of them, you won't be taking that vaccine. Like, you know, the flu vaccine is, is, is from eggs. Some have an allergy to eggs. So there's, way, there's ways to handle that one. It doesn't seem to be in any way worrying in general, you know, but it's something to keep, another thing to keep an eye on. Fantastic, brilliant. Um, I'm going to just revert back to another interview I listened to with you where you were talking about what benefits the immune system and how it involves kids being exposed to small amounts of dirt yeah. during those formative years. So what, what's going to be the effect, do you think, on kids who are growing up now at this time? That's a great question. And we don't know. So was the immediate answer, of course, you know. Um, li living in too clean a world is bad for your immune system when you're a child. So there's loads of scientific studies backing that up. The immune system needs to be educated, no more than all of us. That means getting a bit of dirt, strangely, because then the immune system can, can tell friend from foe. It gets, kind of gets trained in a way, you know. And if that doesn't happen, you get more allergies because now suddenly you're reacting to things that overreacting to certain things, you know. So now, so the advice would be get the kids out occasionally in the garden. Is it okay to do that? You know, in the so I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't have any concerns about getting them a bit dirty now and again. And the outdoors, especially, you see. I'd say after two weeks of homeschooling, their parents up and down the country <laughs> throw them out more, the garden. more than happy to throw their kids Just out to the garden absolutely precisely. not bothered get, at all get them covered in muck out in the back garden or whatever <laughs> you know. um so but yeah i mean it, it, it's a good question though we don't know what what the long-term consequences are going to be on this period for people the hand hygiene and the probably will impact on this a bit we would think you know a few studies will answer that hopefully uh we also of course big question is the psychological impact and that's outside my area but that's another one we won't wonder about isn't it because there will be long-term consequences let's face yeah definitely for for um, little kids definitely yeah uh, i got actually was do you think social media platforms should be held accountable for facilitating the misinformation spread about coronavirus oh that's well beyond my pay grade now Evan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think I think we need social media. I use it all the time myself. It's a fantastic resource, you know. Uh, so it's very hard to please, I suppose, isn't it, in a way? I, I suspect in the future it will get more, shall we say, careful, maybe, you know. And we, we've seen Trump being cancelled, didn't we, on tweet, Twitter and so on. So, yeah, there needs to be some control over it. But the big question becomes in a democracy, what do you do? Because there has to be freedom of speech. People have to be able to protest if they want and make statements if they want, and that's all fine, you know. Uh, but the trouble is, you got to back it up with good evidence, I suppose. So 
So you never know. Maybe social media will become, if you make a claim about something, cite a scientific publication. How about that? Or we won't let you put it up, maybe. I don't know. That, that's unlikely. But but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, will there be some constraints? Yeah, because clearly it, the, the downside of it is, like, it's a bit like the vaccine thing in a way. So the, the, the risk of being harmed by the vaccine is a lot less than being harmed by the if we've opened social media, does that do more harm than good, I suppose, is the question. And if it is doing, if there's evidence, and it's good to get scientific evidence, if it is doing more harm than good, then something will have to be done, I suppose. Because it, it does make people worry. Like, we, we saw this first with Google, as you may all, may, maybe you're, you're younger than me, you guys, but, uh, you know, when Google first came out and you were diagnosed with something, you immediately Googled it and were terrified. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't great, was it? So, so it's, it's a tricky business, I think. But we need to have freedom of information and freedom of, of uh, expression in society. So, so the big question is, how, how does a liberal society deal with the intolerable? Let's put it that way. You know what I mean? And there are very awful things on social media where it's intolerable to see this stuff, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yet we're a liberal society. So that's a big debate that we're going to keep having, I think. Probably unlikely we'll uh, solve it by the end of this podcast. <laughs> you never know, Evan, COVID might be the... Um, the uh, the engine of change there in a way you never know Maybe, yeah right. that would be fantastic yeah something positive to come out of us yeah that's right and the last question we got in actually was are you looking forward to performing with your band again oh god yeah absolutely although we're a bit rusty now so that's <laughs> just, we have to start practicing <laughs> oh absolutely I don't look i'm really looking forward to is um it mightn't be our band, but can you imagine there's a proposal out there at the moment, and you may have seen it, it was, it was in the EU actually, in the commission this first came up, where there should be concerts all over the world when we come out of this. And a bit like Live Aid, we'd have two big concerts and then every country would have its own concerts. Mm. That'd be a great day. I mean, if we get up and we play a few songs and people enjoy them and we get it back to that kind of thing. Can you imagine the sense of joy we'd have? And, and the set list would be great. It'd like walking on sunshine or something. I don't know, you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Proper positive. We, we have to look forward to something, don't we? So, now I don't know when it's going to be that. It could be a year away. You never know. But uh, wouldn't it be tremendous if we something to look forward to? And music is so important to us, isn't it? So to have music as part of that. And if the metabolics are asked to play, we'll be up there like a rocket, I'll tell you. <laughs> a van and I will be there, front and centre. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, imagine the thought of the mosh pit now. I don't know. <laughs> Socially distant mosh pit. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Professor O'Neill, it's been absolutely wonderful to, to talk to you today um, and to debunk the, the great COVID-19 conspiracy and, and just to have a chat about uh, all things science and, and data with you, you know. Um, you're very hopeful and we're very hopeful now for, for having talked to you about everything. And uh, yeah, roll, roll on the vaccines, keep rolling exactly. out so, and uh, hopefully we'll be in a better, better position in a few months time. Indeed, we'll keep the dream alive and hang in there as the trick now because it's very tough at the moment. So we just, we just got to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> these things and then we will get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you who are interested in learning more, Professor O'Neill does have a, a book out called uh, Never Mind the Bollocks. Here's the science. Um, so definitely be checking that out as well. Absolutely. So thanks again for, for, for chatting. Great. Thanks for asking me, guys. Great talking. Thank you. Thanks again. A massive thank you to Professor Luke O'Neill for joining us and a massive thank you to you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please follow, subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up to date or to get in touch, please follow us on social media. We are at Conspiracy Theory Test on Instagram, at Conspiracy Test on Twitter, the Conspiracy Theory Test at gmail.com and the Conspiracy Theory Test.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.